0: And let us read together from Hosea chapter 13, beginning in verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his son's sin is kept in store. The pains of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes, though he may flourish among his brothers. The east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let me start tonight where I left off this morning. That is, in the church of Jesus Christ, we have a common comfort. And that may sound funny to you, what does comfort have to do with the church? But if you think about it, we think a lot about our comfort in life. We make decisions about our cars and about our home and about our bed that we sleep in. And one of the main parts that we look for is is it comfortable? Do we enjoy it? Does it provide a level of comfortability? We wear shoes and clothes that are comfortable to us. We want our guests that come over to be comfortable. We get a job that pays us so that we can have a comfortable living. And even in our last days, when our loved ones are perhaps holding on to their last gasp of breath, what do we say? We want them to be as comfortable as possible. And so, in other words, much of our life is thought about comfort. And that is not wrong. Indeed, comfort is a gift given to us by God, but yet like any gift, it can go too far. It can become an obsession, especially if we're not willing to do things that we should do or ought to do because we just don't feel comfortable with it. Therefore, it's important to ask ourselves, as the Heidelberg Catechism asks us, what is our only or what is our chief comfort in life and in death? Because how you answer that question will dictate all else. That question is telling, is it not? That we all have one chief comfort. And I think We could say that all of humanity falls into two different camps. And this, again, is where the Heidelberg helps us. My only comfort is that I am not my own, the catechism says. And so the two different groups are those that believe that, that I am not my own. And others would say, no, I am my own. That matter of possession, who owns us, who do we belong to, do we belong to ourselves or do we belong to God, is that which will determine so much of life. If we believe that we belong to ourselves, then we are the captain of our own ships, the master of our soul, that is willing and able to chart the course of our own lives. But if it is God, then indeed he is the captain. He is the master, the one who charts the course. And so we see how vitally different this is, how this radically changes how we view all of life, and it comes back to, again, at least in part, to our comfort. How comfortable are we with life being out of our own control? Now, we'd all say that we wouldn't want our lives in the hands of another person, and another person that is much like us, But in the same way, we should also be equally uncomfortable to be allowed to have life in our own hands. We need one who sees all of life from beginning to end, one who is trustworthy and who is faithful, who has given himself to us. And as a result, we are able to give ourselves to him. And to live in such a way that lives and walks by faith, believing that he has our hands, our, our lives in his hands, perfectly in his control. It's not easy, but that is where we find maximum comfort. And that is the place where we can find comfort both in life and in death, it is truly an everlasting comfort, an everlasting peace. Now, those people that believe that life is their own, they might get along just fine. But I think it's oftentimes at death that this frightening realization comes to a head. But the reality is that they are not their own, even though they try to dictate life from that perspective making decisions based on that because it's there at that time when they realize perhaps if they're given the opportunity to to realize as much as they can that they are able to do nothing to prevent death from coming and as a result there is that panic there is that fear it's because they have their worldview turned upside down, or perhaps we would say upside right, that it's finally facing in the right direction, even though they have denied it and have walked in the opposite way all of their life. It's only then do they really, truly realize that there is one greater and bigger than themselves, who is both the giver and sustainer, and yes, even the taker of life. But if your comfort is that you are not your own, then there is no fear in life nor in death because we have the same faith, that same faith that will sustain us both in life and in death. So as we come to this passage tonight, where is our comfort? Israel, as we have been seeing, has been doing their own thing going their own way but death and sheol is drawing near and so where will they look as that approaches where will they look as that comes and the same question is before us too as our day approaches be it near or be it far what is it that is going to sustain us What is it that is able to give us comfort even as it comes nearer and closer? Hosea asks that question, and it's the same question that Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians 15, asking those questions of death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And so tonight's Lord willing, we will answer those questions. We'll see it from two points, reaping judgment and death. And second, receiving salvation and life. First, reaping judgment and death. Last week we saw how the Lord has always provided for his people. How in the garden, everything that Adam and Eve needed was there. That even in their innocence, they were needy. Yet the Lord gave them what they stood in need of, and yet they looked elsewhere for their own sufficiency and as a result ate from that tree that was forbidden. And yet even then, in man's sinfulness, God did not give up on mankind, did not give up on Adam and Eve, but the Lord once again provided for them. And that is truly the testimony of all of Scripture that God has provided for His own. We see that here in Hosea that the Lord provided for Israel. And He provided in three offices that we call prophet, priest, and king. And what we saw last week is that even though the Lord gave them a prophet, gave them His word, they rejected the prophet. And even though God gave them proper worship and gave them priests to lead them in that worship, they created their own worship and worshiped even false idols, worshiping Baal and even making human sacrifice to Asherah. And the Lord gave them kings because they wanted to be like the nations, even though they had the greatest king, God himself, to govern them and to rule over them. But again... The kings, as well as the people, largely went their own way, and the kings led the people, led the charge in sin, and yet God was patient with his own, not letting the sins, not letting the iniquities deter him from his plan and from his purpose and even his love for them. If You read anything out of the book of Hosea, you see it is a book of love for his people, even in the midst of their sin, even though they prostitute themselves, just like Gomer was running off to another man, and the Lord tells Hosea to go retrieve his wife and to love her once again. So too, Israel was going off with other lovers, and yet God is pursuing after her, calling her, wooing her to himself and reiterating his love. But even with that, with God's patience, with God's love, he does not let their sin go unpunished or even forgotten. And what we see in verse 12 in our passage tonight is that the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. The sin is kept in store. It's as if the Lord has been patient, but he has not forgotten all of this sin. He likens it to here, a, a credit being charged or, or a, a, something that is being bound up, almost like water behind a dam and it continues to, to rise until at one point either the dam is going to break or it's going to go over the top and flood everything. And the same is Sid here. It is almost like the people of Israel have continued to make charges on their credit card, which all of you know is so easy to do. It's almost like free money, being able to swipe that card until the bill comes in, the mail, or the banker comes with his hands out, ready to receive payments. And that is what Israel has been doing here has been doing the same they keep sinning they keep making charges but they have outspent their limits they no longer have any more money in the bank they cannot cover the charges that they have made and the patience of the Lord is coming to an end just like a banker or a credit card company might forgive a a late payment or two There's a certain point where they will not forgive anymore. And they will send the repo man to come out to get your car or to take possession of of your house. They will settle accounts. And that is what we read here is that the Lord is beginning to settle his accounts with their own sin and their own iniquity. Again, we read of this in verse 13. The pains of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. It's somewhat difficult to understand exactly what the prophet is saying here, but it seems to be the analogy of a breached child, of a woman that is going into labor, who's having all of the pain of childbirth, but there is no child to show, that there is no child that is coming forth from the womb. And this, in a sense, is what is taking place with the Lord, that the Lord has been striving with his people, but Israel is like an unwise son that does not present himself at the time of birth. To put it even more stark terms, the Lord is having all these labor pains, so to speak, but as experiencing no joy of having a child, of having a son. All of you ladies that have gone through childbirth, I can't even begin to imagine, and thankful that I do not, but I know that you're willing to do that because of the end result, that you will have this beautiful child to be able to hold and to be able to raise and in a sense that is what is being said here is that the Lord is striving is having the pains of childbirth but has no joy of receiving this son receiving this child because of his waywardness of him going his own way and so how long does the Lord have to struggle in labor before someone says, there's a problem here. And all of these analogies is what the Lord has been doing with Israel. He's been being patient. Yet in each instance, you say, but for how long? And so we go on and we read in verse 15. It says, though he may flourish among his brothers, The east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness and his fountain shall dry up. His springs shall be parched. shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. We see a very clear indication of what judgment is going to take place, that this judgment is going to be quick and it's going to be severe and it's going to come from the east like an east wind rising from the wilderness. And this is a, clear hearkening of what is going to take place in mere years when Assyria from the east who is going to come and they are going to be as it says here the wind of the Lord they're going to be the judgment of the Lord what does this mean does it mean that God is going to be directly involved with the atrocities that will take place does it mean that he's going to commend all of their ways no, for we know that Assyria was brutal in their attacks. Brutal in their way that they would handle these nations, how they would fight and how they would bring about warfare. In fact, we read of some of this at the end of 16. It says that they shall saw, fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. We see this again heinous ways that Assyria is going to deal with Israel. And so is it the Lord's blessing upon them to do so? These terrible things? No, God is not the author of sin or of wickedness. But what God is doing is that he is going to remove his hedge of protection around Israel so that this brutal and wicked and evil and heathen nation will come in to do these things and to be a part of his judgment upon them. Has God allowed this evil country to decimate them in this way? Yes. Is it a part of his judgment upon them? Absolutely. Does it mean that every time we see atrocities in this world that this is a judgment of God? No, we cannot go that far or say that. But here, specifically revealed, we do know that this was going to be the judgment of the Lord upon his own, upon Israel, sent by the hand of God. And so we have this question in verse 14 Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? And in this case, the answer is no. They will not be saved from death. They will not be so, saved from Sheol. And Sheol, just so we're on the same page, is not heaven or hell or the afterlife. It means the place of the dead. Probably the closest English translation would be the grave or be the cemetery, the place where the dead dwell, where physical bodies are placed and so the people of Israel will experience the pain of death and they'll experience the sting of the grave even as it says here compassion is hidden from my eyes says the lord and we might like to say oh well poor israel or even perhaps worse oh why would God be so mean to allow this to happen. But before we go thinking along those terms, we must think in this way. This is exactly what their sins deserve. And not only is it exactly what their sins deserve, but it's what our sins deserve as well. We might like to look down our nose upon Israel think that they are far worse than us. But our sins are as hell-deserving as theirs. Even though we may not like to think ours are as bad, we'd like to try to compare the two, but they are. Last week in our recitation of the Shorter Catechism, remember we confess what is it that every sin deserves and there we confess if you remember every sin deserves god's wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come and that should send a chill down our spine because oftentimes i think we can confess that and we can think about it theologically or we can think about it mentally but we don't think about it experientially we can say, yeah, I know that, I realize that, but has the full weight of that really settled upon us? Has the truth of that really got down to our very toes? That my sin, not just sins, but my sin, every single sin, deserves the wrath of God. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's not only just Israel that was reaping the judgment and the death and the wrath of God, but very much so this could be a picture of us if the Lord was not compassionate, if the Lord did not save us from our own sins. But even in the midst of this, we see in our second point is that this is only for a time That there is this hope of receiving salvation and life. That as dark as this picture may be, that there is a hope too. And there is especially a hope in the light of the New Testament, in the light of the gospel. Because the call throughout Hosea is that Israel would return. Would return to the Lord. We see this back in chapter 12, verse 6 where it says, so you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. And then again in chapter 14, as we'll see uh, in two weeks, in verse 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with your words and return to the Lord, says him. Again, it is this repeated call for Israel to repent, to return unto God. And we know that this is not just the call of Hosea. This is indeed the call of the entire Bible. And how is it that this call can be made? Well, it can be made because God is not just a wrathful God. God is not just a God that sends judgment. God is a God of compassion. God is a God that forgives And yet that compassion and that forgiveness came at a cost. And that is where I believe Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, quotes these verses as a part of his climax. In that great chapter speaking about the resurrection from the dead. And he says these words, when the perishable puts on imperishable, The mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? These are direct quotations of Hosea chapter 13. But what is Paul saying and why is he quoting Hosea here? Because you might think from the context that Paul is not using this rightly. Because in the context of Hosea, Hosea is saying, this is what your sins deserve. Your sins deserve judgment and death. They deserve the, the sting that is there. They deserve Sheol and the plagues of death. That is the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. But what we see is that in Jesus Christ, that is not the only ending even though that should be the ending that each and every one of us deserve. That there is a new ending, that there is a new hope, that there is a salvation from this curse, there is a deliverance from this final enemy, that the resurrection of the dead will be the final piece of this glorification, will be the final piece of this salvation. That only then will we see the perfect and complete picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do and has done. I don't know if any of you are fans or enjoy puzzles, but there is a sense of incompletion while there are any puzzle pieces missing, when there are any gaps or holes and then there is such joy when you finally get to that point where you have only one spot and one puzzle piece left and you can put that puzzle piece there to complete it. And you stand back and you say, it is accomplished. In the grand scheme of things, in the grand redemption, the puzzle is not complete until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and we have the resurrection from the dead when all that are dead will rise. Because even for the believer, even those, for those that have died, yes, we confess that their souls are with the Lord, but their bodies are not. Their bodies are still under the curse, right? Still experiencing the plague of death still experiencing the sting of Sheol. And so that is why Paul says here, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, which again will not take place until the Lord comes back, Paul says, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The full extent of death, the far-reaching effects of the curse, then will be done away with, and we shall be free. Not only free in our soul, but free in our body. The sting will be gone, the curse will be done away with, and there will be only victory. No longer defeat, no longer loss, but unending joy and praise in our physical bodies, all because of the Lord Jesus Christ, all because of what he has done. We confess on a regular basis the Apostles' Creed, and we're in that saying about Christ that we confess he crucified and was dead and buried and that he descended into hell. I think that it's a better translation would be that he descended into Hades or uh, descended into even perhaps Sheol. That what we're confessing there is that Jesus Christ descended into the place of the dead for three days, only then to burst forth from the gates of hell, from the gates of Sheol, if you want to put it that way, from the grave itself into the newness of life. And so shall we, and all that are in Christ. And so that is wonderful, good news. In other words, Jesus Christ redeems all of us, body, soul, and spirit. And so that should give us great hope. Those of us that struggle bodily, which we all do in a different level, we can take courage, that can take comfort, that there will be one day when there no longer will be any aches and pains. There will no longer be any reason to go see doctors or have doctor appointments. There will no longer be sickness and cancer and chronic disease and pain, but we shall be redeemed in glorified bodies, able to experience the fullness of God's goodness and grace. That is so good that we don't even fully know what that means. We will experience this world, the new heavens and the new earth, with eyes that see anew, with minds that are clear and think rightly, bodies that are no longer fatigued or grow tired, and we'll have unending pleasure and joy. And we'll able to serve God without limits. This is the hope. This is our hope. This is the hope of those that have gone on before us, that are even in the grave and tombs this day. But they shall not be there forever. They too long for the day of redemption. And we confess with our catechism that, yes, as we said, their souls go to be immediately with the Lord, but their bodies, still being united to Christ, rest in the grave until the resurrection. And so, one day that will come. And when it does, then we will be able to say, with Hosea, with Paul, that death is swallowed up in victory O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And Paul goes on to say, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it says there that we have been given the victory. Not that we will be given the victory, but presently we have the victory in Christ. We haven't already obtained the freedom or the glorification in our bodies that is yet to come, but we already have the key, so to speak, that unlocks it. We have the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done because he is already resurrected in the body. And just as he is resurrected in the body, so too shall we. And so I go back to our opening question that I asked you this night, where is Your comfort. Here we have all the comfort we need, both in life and in death. And so the question is, who do we belong to? Do we belong to ourselves? If that's true, then we have no comfort at all. There's only sin and death and hell there forever. But if we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, then there is salvation, there is life, there is blessing forevermore. What a comfort that truly is. Tonight, I hope we would praise God for what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the comfort that we receive as we go to sleep tonight, as we put our heads upon our pillows. May we rest in the comfort that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and praise him for it. And as the Lord would so grant us another day or another week or another year, may this be our constant Comfort and our joy, even forevermore. Join me in praising Him for this. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, for the blessing of the resurrection from the dead. Lord, if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ, then we would say that death would have the upper hand, that Sheol would have the everlasting sting. But, Lord, we are thankful that in the Lord Jesus Christ that he has conquered both death and the grave. And that all that rest in him shall receive the same. And so, Lord, we pray that that would give us great comfort and hope even as we see the day drawing near. And, Lord, we are thankful for the forgiveness of sins and the compassion that you have lavished upon us on a daily basis And so, Lord, may we walk in that newness of life this day, this week. And as long as you give us breath, and even as that breath is being taken away, Lord, may we be reminded that our life is not contained ultimately in us, but in you. And so, Lord, we will be where you are. And, Lord, we do look forward to that day that you would come back and complete the picture, that you would put the last puzzle piece in place, and that we shall dwell with you in eternity in glorified bodies. Lord, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.